Last week we finished Ezekiel 9, and we're now moving on to Ezekiel 10. The thing that's going on situationally is Ezekiel is physically in Babylon, and he's been doing this series of pantomimes about what's going to happen, and to remind everybody, at this point in the book, we are between the first and the second Babylonian invasions. So the prophecies that he's doing are with respect to what's going to happen to Israel on the second Babylonian invasion. Ezekiel was taken to Babylon on the first invasion, which is where he lives and where he's doing his prophecies. And there's been two prophecies so far. There's one that was the fifth year of the exile, and then the second one that we're in the middle of was in the sixth year of the exile. This is a different prophecy and a different vision than what he got in the first part of the book. He's been taken in the spirit to Jerusalem. His physical body is still hanging out in Babylon, but he spiritually has been picked up and moved to Jerusalem in much the same way that John is spiritually picked up and taken to heaven in order to witness the events of Revelation. Same kind of a situation. And where we were in 8 and 9 is God took him around Jerusalem and showed him the abominations that were happening in Jerusalem. And God then sent a scribe through Jerusalem and marked the people who were appalled at what was going on. So the mark on the forehead was prophylactic. In other words, it kept the destroyers from killing those people. And then he sent six destroyers into the city and killed everybody who was not marked. This is all in a vision. So I am reasonably sure that the destroyers that are actually going to do the whacking of people are Babylonians. I am not at all convinced that you had an angel going through Jerusalem slaying people at the time of the vision. I think that's symbolic. The fact that there are only six destroyers indicates that he is not going to make a complete end of the Jewish people. There's going to be a remnant, but I think that the actual Physical death of the people is going to be caused by the Babylonians during Nebuchadnezzar's second invasion. Let me pick it up at chapter 9, verse 8. And while they were striking, these are the six who were sent to destroy. And while they were striking and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? That he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen with a writing case on his waist brought back word saying, I have done as you commanded me. We've said this lots of times before. In fact, I think I just said it on Shabbat. 
people of a Sunday persuasion are of the opinion that God goes through and smites people if they got bacon breath. In other words, sin is sin. It's all worthy of the death penalty. So if you break one part of the law, at some point God is going to smite you, at least according to the old covenant as they see it. I don't see that as being correct at all. What God finally gets to the point of smiting people is when the nation has fallen into violence, the land is full of blood, and injustice so that they have built a society in which there is no justice. And when they get to that point, that's when God is finally moved to act. For example, when he goes and takes out Sodom and Gomorrah, the common idea of what's going on is God really doesn't like sodomites. And so these guys are doing unauthorized use of the reproductive organs, therefore we're going to go in and smite them. That's not what's going on. The reason Sodom and Gomorrah are taken out is because of violence. As you know from the book of Genesis, these two angels come into town and everybody in town was going to sexually abuse them. That is sort of an indication that society has fallen into corruption and violence. And that's the thing that pushes God over the edge and we get the fire and brimstone. Certainly he says don't have homosexual relationships. He does say that. But that's not the reason Sodom and Gomorrah finally get taken out. Same thing with Israel here. It isn't the case that everybody's got bacon breath, which is to say they're not following the dietary laws. The problem is their society has descended into violence and injustice. And that's what finally causes God to move. And he'll say that over and over. This is why these things are happening to you. The point I was making, I have heard lots of Christian preachers, and it's been a while since I've been in a Christian church, but I hear them on radio and so forth, lots of them that I very much like, that tend to paint God in the Tanakh as harsh, vengeful, unloving. One of the attitudes in many Christian churches is that everything has changed since Jesus. And what I'm suggesting is nothing has changed with Jesus. It's always the same. And the fact that things like Ezekiel get so much ink is because Sodom and Israel and so forth have fallen into such dysfunction that finally God has said, can't take it anymore. Out of the pool. In Ezekiel, it is not that God is having a bad day and is about half ticked and just comes in and wipes everybody out. What he's saying is, the reason I'm doing this is because of the bloodshed and the injustice in your society. Nineveh was at the point where God was going to wipe them out in 40 days. So they had also fallen into injustice, violence, etc. And he sends Jonah to them, and they sit down in sackcloth and ashes, they repent, they plead, and God changes his mind. So the idea that there is forgiveness available, I, I completely agree with. They're not looking for it, though. And in fact, the other part of that is the rest of this paragraph that I just read. Verse 9, The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice, for they say, 
The Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. So the idea here is they are not contemplating repentance whatsoever. They are saying, school teachers away, we get to do whatever we want during class. The attitude is very much not repentant. It is very much sinning with a high hand and we're going to do what we want to do and nobody's going to make us not. Chapter 10 now. Then I looked and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, an appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels beneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. We're going to see this same thing happen again in Revelation. Remember when they go in between the cherubim and they get a bucket of coals and they scatter it to the earth? Those two instances are not the same, even though they superficially look like they are. This one is going to be cleansing fire on Jerusalem because Jerusalem is about to be taken out and and sanded flat. The temple is going to be destroyed. Everything is going to be flattened. The Revelation instance that looks similar actually goes back to Korah's rebellion. And you remember Korah's rebellion where Moses confronts Korah, the earth splits and goes kaplump, and you have 250 people who show up in front of the tabernacle, and there's a plague. Aaron then goes in, grabs coals from the incense altar, and the plague is sort of going like a front. You know, you can see a a wave moving through the people. And what Aaron does is he runs and stands at the front edge of the wave with this incense, and that stops the plague. The Revelation incident is the same kind of thing, where you have a plague going across the earth, and they throw a censer down to the earth, and that is the same event as what happens with Aaron. This, on the other hand, is a cleansing fire. What's going to happen is Jerusalem is not going to be spared, and you have an analog, if you will, of fire from heaven, a la Sodom and Gomorrah. So ten, two and a half. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house. When the man went in, a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with a cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voices of God Almighty when he speaks. So what we have here is God mounting on his chariot and the chariot leaving. And the sound that you get is, if we were describing the same thing today, it would be like a helicopter taking off as he lifts off. I'm not suggesting it was a helicopter. I'm simply saying that we would describe it in those terms, whereas Ezekiel describes them in terms that are familiar to him. Verse 6, And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel. 
and a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim, and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. Everybody know what barrel is? It's a semi-precious stone. Emerald is a barrel. Topaz is a barrel. If it's green, it's an emerald. If it's purple, I think it's an amethyst. But they're all barrels. Verse 10. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness, as if a wheel were within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. But in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. I would describe this as something on gimbals, like a Roomba, which moves sideways and this way, but it doesn't have to turn to change directions. It can be moving this way and facing that way, and all of a sudden it can shift sideways. So it's that kind of a movement. Verse 12. And their whole body, their arms and their spokes, their wings and the wheels were full of eyes all around, the wheels that the four of them had. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And every one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face was a human face. The third face, the face of a lion. And the fourth face, the face of an eagle. We went through this the first time he saw it. And he'll say down in verse 22 that this is the exact same thing he saw at the Chabar Canal. And there he described it as a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Here he describes it as a lion, an eagle, a cherub, and a man. So what you can do then, since the visions were the same, is you can equate an ox with a cherub. And this is Johnnyology, obviously. But I am sort of of the opinion that the golden calf, as well as the calves that were set up at Dan and Bethel, were all intended to be images of cherubim. That's what I think. They weren't worshiping cows, as in Egyptian livestock gods. They were worshiping cherubim, which are supernatural beings which are around the throne of God. And they're, of course, described as golden calves. But based on this, I sort of think what we were going for were cherubim. Verse 15. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Cherub Canal. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from before them. When they stood still, these stood still. When they mounted up, these mounted up with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out, with the wheels beside them, and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So the Shekinah, the glory, is mounted up on this vehicle, whatever it is. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Chabar Canal. 
and I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces, and each had four wings, and underneath their wings were the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Chabar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. Talked about this before. You've all seen Egyptian hieroglyphics from before the Exodus. And you have these beings that look like human beings with bird's heads and all that kind of stuff. I am not saying thus saith anybody but me, but I think those are intended to be images of cherubim. These are things that people have actually seen. And when you get descriptions like this and so forth, I suspect that these are things that people have seen. So we're all the way down to chapter 11 now. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were 25 men. And I saw among them Jaazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelathiah, the son of Benaniah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in this city, who say, the time is not near to build houses. The city is the cauldron, we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. So this image of a cauldron and meat. There's a couple of cauldron images. Jeremiah 1:13. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. And the Lord said to me, Out of the north, evil shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdom of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls all around, and against all the cities of Judah. So this idea of a pot coming from the north, as we're seeing the image of boiling hot oil or boiling soup being flushed over the city of Jerusalem. And by the way, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are contemporaries. So they're both using the same kind of a image, but they're using it differently. And the image being used in Ezekiel is we are inside a pot and it's like we're inside of a tank turret. The city is going to hold us. The city is going to keep us safe. They can shoot their arrows against the side of the pot, but they're just going to bounce off. So the image in Ezekiel is we are like the meat in the pot in that we are safe inside the pot. The image in Jeremiah is you got a pot of boiling something or other that's being spilled over the land. So I just wanted to point out that we have both of those prophecies by contemporaries who use a similar image differently. The point that is going on here is Israel, the remnant, is going into rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar. Remember in the first invasion, Nebuchadnezzar took a whole bunch of nobility and so forth and put Israel under tribute, just like you would any conquered people. We came down here, we beat you fair and square, now you're going to pay tribute up to us and you're going to be a vassal state. That's sort of the way those things worked. Israel is rebelling. 
which is what moves Nebuchadnezzar to come back a second time. And the second time he comes down, he is a bit upset because they have rebelled against him. And what these people are saying is, we are safe to rebel because Jerusalem, the city, this pot that we are in, will protect us. Nobody is going to be able to take us out. The city is going to be impregnable. And remember, Jeremiah, during this prophecy by Ezekiel, is living in Jerusalem. These guys are contemporaries. And so Jeremiah is back in the land. Ezekiel is in Babylon. Jeremiah, when he talks about the leadership of the remnant of Israel, says, you folks have become liars. So what you're doing is you are standing and you're pointing up at the temple and you're saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We have the temple of the living God in our midst. We are going to be safe. Jeremiah says, you guys are like a band of robbers. And what you're doing is you're trying to use the temple as a hideout. So you're going out and doing injustice and so forth, and then you're fleeing to the hideout in the rocks, and you're hiding there and say, our hideout is going to keep us safe. So what they're doing is they're treating the temple as a band of robbers would treat a hideout where they retreat and divide up their loot and do whatever else while they get ready to go out and rob some more. So Jeremiah is saying, when you guys point at the temple of the Lord, you say, we're going to be safe because we have the temple. Ezekiel is saying, these guys are saying, we are in Jerusalem. We're going to be safe. They're both talking about the same thing in slightly different metaphors. This cry of the temple of the Lord in Jeremiah 7. So 11.5. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, say... Thus says the Lord, So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city and have filled its street with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat, and this city is the cauldron, but you shall be brought out of the midst of it. What he's doing is he's obviously flipping the metaphor. The Powers that be in Israel are saying, Jerusalem's the cauldron, we're going to be safe because the pot's going to protect us. God switches it around and says, no, all these people that you have unjustly slain, they're the meat, you're coming out. Verse 8, you have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God, and I will bring you out of the midst of it and give you into the hands of foreigners and execute judgment upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. We'll stop there. This goes back to what I said earlier. If you just take verse 12 in isolation, it looks like they're being chastised for bacon breath. You guys haven't followed the law. And that can be anything from eating bacon to carrying something on Shabbat. 
But everything that's before that says, no, the problem here is violence and injustice, not simple transgressions of parts of the law. You aren't going to go to hell for bacon breath. If you do go to hell, you're going to go to hell for murder or injustice or something like that. And that's what God is saying here. 13. And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelathiah, the son of Benaniah, died. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? So this is the second time he's done that. Remember, he did it after the man with the writing case went through and marked everybody for death. And as I said at the time, and I think it was right or I wouldn't have said it, during the vision is not when the destruction takes place. The destruction is going to take place under Nebuchadnezzar. This guy, Pelathiah, is a down payment. So what happens is this guy drops dead, but everybody else is also going to be slain. And of course, Ezekiel falls down and asks, how long? Verse 14, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. So what they're saying there is, God gave us this land, and it doesn't really matter whether we continue to follow him. It's basically a variation on the thing in Jeremiah 7, where they look up and see this magnificent temple and say, the temple of the Lord, there's no way that we're going to be conquered because we got the temple of the Lord. They're saying similar things here. And by the way, that's one of the bases of the rebellion. They have false prophets, and we'll get to false prophets in just a minute because they're going to be there too. They have false prophets telling them that God is on our side. This is our land. We have the temple of the Lord. What are we doing putting up with these hairy Babylonians? Let's throw them out and reestablish the kingdom. 16. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I remove them far off among the nations, and though I scatter them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. So what he's saying here is, I have scattered you both in the Assyrian dispersion and in the Babylonian dispersion, yet I have kept my hand on them. God is saying essentially that he is being true to the covenant. He said he will never leave them or forsake them. He doesn't say, however, that they're going to be in the land forever. He says, I will be with you, and he's being faithful. Verse 17, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come here, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh 
that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That is a succinct statement of the New Covenant. The New Covenant shows up in Deuteronomy. It shows up in Jeremiah. It shows up here in Ezekiel twice. It'll show up a couple of times in Ezekiel. It shows up in Isaiah. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all will have versions of the New Covenant. The one that shows up in the book of Hebrews, which again, the Sunday church grabs a hold of, not, not saying anything wrong with that, I'm just saying that's where they grab, that's a quotation out of Jeremiah 31. This is Ezekiel's statement of the same thing, and he uses a slightly different metaphor, where Jeremiah says, I will write my law on their heart. Go to Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and their house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So this idea of writing the Torah, and by the way, the word there for law is Torah. I've said this lots of times, but I will remind you all. You remember as they're standing at the foot of Sinai in Exodus 20, God starts to speak. And the way the Hebrew is structured, he speaks the first two commandments. And then Israel says, stop! If we hear any more, we're going to die. Moses, you go up the mountain, you hear what he's got to say, you come back, we can listen to you, and we'll do what you say. And as I have described that, what's supposed to be happening at the foot of the mountain is the consummation of a marriage. What happens in the consummation of marriage, for those of you who don't know, is the husband puts seed, information, into the bride with the intention of bringing forth new life. The word of God is seed. What God is trying to do at Sinai is write the Torah on their hearts. The bride said, no, stop. If you continue, we're going to die. We can't do this anymore. So when Moses goes up and gets tablets of stone, that becomes a metaphor for hearts of stone. The words don't change, the gift doesn't change, but the location where it's written changes. Instead of being written on human hearts as was intended, it becomes written on tablets of stone. What Ezekiel is saying here is I will take that stony heart that you would not let me write on I will take that stony heart out of you. I will give you a heart of flesh. And then I will be able to write my Torah where I wanted to write it back at Sinai. That's the new covenant. The words of the Torah do not change. They were perfectly fine the first time he spoke them. They continue to be perfectly fine. The problem is they're written in the wrong place. And so what Ezekiel is saying here is when God finally brings them back to the land and they clean the place out from abominations and everything, 
At that point, we're going to do what Moses describes as a circumcision of the heart. Ezekiel describes it as taking the heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah describes it as I will write my law on your heart. It's all the same thing. Different metaphors, but the same thing. The idea that in the New Testament, any of this is changed is a Hebrew word for that. It's called baloney. It's the same covenant. It hasn't changed. Just the location where it's written is the only thing that changed. Verse 21. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Again, measure for measure. He's not being randomly, capriciously harsh. He's saying, this is what you want. This is what you're going to get. 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that was on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. So what mountain is to the east of Jerusalem? Mount of Olives. Where is he going to come back? Mount of Olives. So the glory of the Lord lifts up out of the temple, rests on the Mount of Olives, and then leaves until such time as the sun is going to come back and he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. He's going to come right back to where he left from. The comment was, if Jeremiah and Ezekiel are contemporary, what we have are two witnesses. Yeah, good for you. I like that. Je